27 years old, was uh, sitting at home one night and the police came and issued a, an arrest warrant on him and uh, put him in jail. He went to court and he was uh, wrongly convicted of a murder he had never committed. Richard Phillips spent the next 45 years in prison for something he had never done. In 2010, about sort of 41 or so years later, uh, the key prosecution witness for that trial confessed that he had lied to frame Phillips for that crime. Crime. He confessed that the whole story had been cooked up to put Phillips in jail, a, a black African there in the USA in 1972. He was unjustly jailed for 45 years uh, before being released, and he was released in 2014 at the age of 72. Pretty amazing story. You can actually get that off, uh, off the, uh, Google. Uh, unjust. Unjustly put in jail for 45 years. But God, he is just. He is just. He makes judgments and he never gets it wrong. He never gets it wrong. And today we're going to see God declare his judgments here upon the nations as we think about these closing chapters here in Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bibles, so go to Jeremiah 46. And we're going to read just a portion of this uh, chapter as we try and get a snapshot of what's happening in these um, final chapters here in Jeremiah. So chapter 46, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. About Egypt, concerning the army, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiah, Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen, take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, Put on your armour. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, the rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who put handle to the shield. Men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain have you used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word of the Lord spoke. To, the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol. Proclaim in Memphis and Tarphanes. Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? 
They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And they said to one another, Arise and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the seal, see, shall one come. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. Father, we uh, give you thanks and praise that we can come and gather this morning. We ask Holy Spirit right now as we look at these uh, challenging parts of Scripture. Uh, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds uh, to see a glorious picture of a just God declaring judgment upon the nations. Help us to grasp this and to see this and to worship you, Lord, as a God who is just and who never gets it wrong. God, we ask and pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does all that mean when you read something like that? What does that mean? Uh, these next five chapters are pretty challenging. We actually call them judgment oracles. If you were going to have a study Bible there, you would probably say these are the judgment oracles. These are declarations by God judging the nations. An oracle is a prophetical statement or declaration that is spoken out. And if you thought Jeremiah was a sort of a dark and gloomy book, you might just think, if you read through these next five chapters, it's sort of gone next level as you see how God speaks to these nations surrounding uh, Israel and Judah at these times. So, what are these chapters about? It's part of the Bible. If, been, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been doing your daily reading and trying to get across the whole of the Bible, you may have come across this type of writing before and read a little bit of this. And then maybe just skipped over it and gone to some other chapters, thinking, I've got no idea what's happening here as I look at these judgment oracles. Or, if you're not a believer, and let me say, if you are and you're here, we are so glad you are here today, because we love people who aren't believers to maybe lead them to see Christ and who he is. You too could be looking onto somebody's Bible right now thinking, I've got no idea what this is about. No idea as I look at this sort of stuff. I thought the Bible was all about nice sort of stuff, good stuff, not this other sort of stuff. It's important to see the Bible is made up of all types of different writing. The Bible is very varied in many ways. Some are what we call stories or narrative in the scriptures. Some of it's instructional. Uh, some of it is actually also wisdom writing. Uh, some also was poetry. And this type we're looking at here, as we just said, uh, judgment oracles. Uh, these judgment oracles appear in a few different books of the Bible. And as you might have seen, yours could be in an indented form. It's actually in the form of a poem that it's written like that. Uh, and these poems had a very strong sense of language, as you saw some of those things there, a sword sated with blood. Uh, a strong language to pronounce or prophesy the downfall and the destruction of these nations or nation states at that particular time. And these oracles here, if you read through the five chapters of them, are directed towards the ten nations or nation-states that have surrounded Judah or Israel and have actually had something to do with them in the past. And These nations have either scoffed or ridiculed the one true God that Israel is following in Yahweh, or these nation-states have inflicted persecution or suffering of all sorts of levels upon Israel or Judah by invading them 
and seeking to crush their existence. So God's declaring a judgment oracle upon them. As we think about this today, what we're going to see is this, that these are God's sovereign judgments upon these nations for their pride and their arrogance towards God. Judgment oracles towards these nation states for the cruelty that they've brought upon God's people and what they've done by carrying out these actions against Judah and Israel. Let's jump into it. First thing that's really, really obvious from the top here as we think about this, or if you read through some of these before, God is just. God is just. God is right. God is declaring just judgments here upon nations who are defying him and then carrying out these actions of defiance against God's people in the nation of Judah and Israel. Now, can I say, when I make that comment that God is just and he's judging, sometimes this can be one of the most difficult attributes that people actually sort of recoil a bit from God at times. Particularly if they're an unbeliever, it's just like they don't want to hear about a God who judges. And sometimes we as believers think that's a bit hard for us to accept. We like to think of God as full of love and mercy, and he absolutely is. But when we read stuff like this, we sort of feel like, oh, this is a bit hard. The Bible gives us a really clear picture that God is a just judge. He's not only a just judge, or he's not just a just judge. He is everything else that we know from Scripture. God is perfect in every way, but he certainly is a very real part of God, is just, and he is a judge. Genesis 18.25, where Abraham is interceding over Sodom at this particular time, he says this, talking to God, or the angel of the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And then he says this, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham clearly saw who God was, a just judge, and he will do right. Again in Deuteronomy, this time Moses is talking about God. He says this in Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's who God is. He's just. He's upright. He's a judge. And actually, it's a really good thing that God is just and a judge at the same time. It's a really good thing. Tell me, how do you and I react when you hear about those smooth-talking sort of false telephone salesmen who get on the telephone and ring up unsuspecting elderly people and eventually try and get their bank details out of them and their bank passwords out of them? How do you respond when you hear about that? It doesn't normally put a smile on your face, does it? You respond with, how could they do something like that? How could they possibly go and prey on those people like that? Something stirs within us. Something says, we want to see justice done. They shouldn't be able to do that. They should actually pay the price of trying to deceive those people. That's not right. They're con artists. They should be exposed. That's how we react when we hear that. That's our response, isn't it? It's right that we should be looking for justice here because God's justice is a good thing. It's a really good thing. And God doesn't miss a thing that has taken place in the world in the way of injustice. He does not miss a thing. 
we've had countless numbers of cruel dictators in the past who've carried out all sorts of mayhem and murder on their people and seemingly in some of these countries they get away with it their whole life. They get away with what we call blue murder in so many ways and they're never brought to a proper uh, court of justice and to be accountable for their crimes. They will have their day in court. It may not be on this earth, but they will have their day in court and God will sit at the judgment bar and he will judge them for all that they have done. And no different for those con artists from the telephone. If they have sitting in what's they often are in foreign countries, never get caught for what they're doing, if they don't become believers, they will meet God at his court and they will face his justice. So, we have here these ten nations who are receiving God's judgment around about them. Let's see what God says to them here. And what we need to see is God is speaking directly to these nations. We're just going to take a small snapshot over a few of these chapters. Chapter 49, Jeremiah says this, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Bosra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste and a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual wastes. Chapter 50, verse 18, God says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. Again, in uh, verse 45, Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Babylon and the purposes that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of their flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. A small sample where God's directly talking to some of these ten nations here about his judgment upon them for the way they've lived and carried on their lives. Sometimes you come away feeling, reading these chapters, you're feeling somewhat stunned. Like I said, it's, it's sort of uncomfortable in a way, but you get this really, really clear picture here of God who is sovereign and just. Sovereign and just. And that's what we're supposed to see when we read this. That's what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see this big vision of who God is. He's revealing himself to us through the scriptures. We're meant to see a very big, large God who controls, who rules, who is sovereign and who is just, who's infinitely holy and delights in seeing justice carried out. God wants us to see that about him. Because when evil is unpunished or not dealt with, we then think something's unjust because it hasn't been dealt with properly. So God, who's perfectly holy and perfectly good, carries out his justice. So what do these nations do to bring on God's justice? Why have they aroused God's justice here at this time? Here again is just a few things scattered through these chapters. We see what's happened in the life of these nations. It says this in chapter 48 for the land of Moab. Make him drunk because he magnified himself against the Lord so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he too shall be held in derision. Later in that same chapter, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness his pride and his arrogance and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. 49 verse 4. 
Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter who trusted in her treasure, saying, who will come against me? Perhaps you're starting to see a little bit of a pattern emerge now through those three. Let's look at two more. Uh, Jeremiah 49, 16. The horror you inspire has deceived you and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. And lastly, in Jeremiah 50, verse 29, speaking to the Babylonians, Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, encamp around her, let no one escape, repay her according to her deeds, do to her according to all that she has done, for she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Just a small sampling of verses there. But all those nations have gone the same way. There's a common thread we're seeing right through what's taking place there. Pride has filled their heart and they've risen up against God. They've defied the God who gives them breath and life. They've defied the God who gives them everything they have in this world. Nation after nation after nation has said, we are strong in ourselves. We've developed our own power. There is no one like us. We are invincible and we will take control wherever and whenever we like. That's what they're saying. Filled with pride, they've looked at the, at the country and the people next door to them as another nation and they've said, we are more powerful than you. We will come and invade you and we will take you over because we want what you've got and we will do what we like. That's where pride is speaking in and through their hearts. They have defied God. And this is their base sin or their base corruption or their foundation brokenness with him. They have defied God. They have said, who are you God? Who are you? We've got our own gods who led us into power and victory. We don't need you. We can do life on our own. The God of Israel doesn't tell us what to do. Who are you God? Is what they're saying. And when the sin of defying God is worked out as the base and the foundational sin, it then becomes a victimisation and a crushing of the weak. Because when they invaded countries and people, they didn't do it in a nice, pleasant way. They didn't actually conduct war according to the, the conventions of the Geneva Agreement. They carried out their war, they carried out their invasions with inhumane slaughters. They carried this out upon men and defenceless women and children in, in barbaric ways. Inhumane, as they victimised. And as they pillaged, as they plundered, as they massacred on huge scales, which they did, because their hearts were defying God and they were filled with pride as they did this. So God addresses them. God declares these judgment oracles upon them. And he says things like this, displaying who he is. Jeremiah 49, 19 says this, Behold, Like a lion coming up from the jungle of Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. This is God speaking. He says this, For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? God's asking the question, For who is like me? Who can stand against me? For which the obvious answer is, no one. No one can stand against 
all-powerful omnipotence. Because that's who God is. He holds all power. He says, who will stand against No one. You can't stand against me, Babylon or Moab or Ammon or all these other countries. And again, Jeremiah speaks like this, speaking about God. In chapter 51, he says this, It is he, God, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, talking about God, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, and the Lord of hosts is his name. The sovereign creative God of power speaks, speaks loudly, speaks in a league of his own. And he speaks so that people will see who he is. He speaks so we will be humbled into worshipping this sovereign God who is just and judges all things. That last section there is actually God speaking to Babylon. And Babylon at that time is the current world superpower. They are dominating the known world. They are like indestructible in the eyes of man. Whatever they do, they just go and do it. No one stops them. They just run over countries just like a lawnmower runs over grass. Nothing gets in the way of Babylon. But they were haughty, they were proud, and they were filled with their own self-importance. No one's as good as us. And as much as they don't want to admit it and don't want to do it, Babylon, you will answer to God for all your pride. You may think you are the most powerful nation on the earth, but you will answer to God for all your pride. God rules over the world's superpowers. We look at the world today, and there's probably three very dominating world superpowers. The USA, China and Russia. Strong countries, strong nations. God absolutely rules sovereignly over the USA, over China and over Russia. They only do what God allows them to do. And if they're carrying out uh, injustice in any particular way, they will answer to God for that because he holds power over everything. And in all God's perfections, he can be trusted that the judge of the earth will do right. Nothing will escape his notice. His judgments are impartial and he cannot be bribed and he will give to everybody exactly what they're due. Now for Israel and Judah at this time, they probably would take some comfort from this because they were invaded in a very, very uh, barbaric way. And for most of Jeremiah's book, actually it's been directed towards them in their godless living, which is right. But they would stand back after these invasions and say, God, what is going on here? Because what's happened to us is devastating and it's harsh. But they could trust a God who would deal justly with their enemies. But they would not get away with that for all that they've done. God will act in his holiness and uphold his name and justly judge 
the nations around about him. How do we consider this scripture today then as we think about that? We must ask ourselves here, perhaps we could come from the position of a victim or a perpetrator from injustice. It can be on both sides of the coin. Also, we must ask ourselves, are we any different to Babylon in some respect? Some of the questions we must think about as we look at these judgment oracles here today. Perhaps let's start here. If someone has been victimised and treated unjustly and the perpetrator or the offender has never confessed or been caught, if that person uh, hasn't repented and believed in Jesus Christ, then they will face God's justice. They'll be held to account for their crime. It'll make no difference whether it's the, uh, the villages in northern Nigeria, those Christian villages in the early parts of this year, who were getting invaded by uh, militant Islamic neighbours and just horrific crimes caused to get them. Hundreds upon hundreds of men, women and children slaughtered in those villages and seemingly the government's done nothing about it those people could feel this is really unjust. Where is justice here? Whether it's that, or whether you could be perhaps a person who's a victim of sexual abuse when you're a child or even older in your life, and that offender has never been caught or never owned up or never confessed to what's happened. You might sit there today and think, both of you, where's justice? Where's justice in that? Christian villages in northern Nigeria or someone who's suffered abuse in the past and everybody seems to have assaulted me and they've gotten away with it. Where's justice if you've been a victim of those things? Well, if those offenders or perpetrators become Christians, they should come clean. They should confess their sin and they should apologise and they should take the rap for their crimes if they become a believer. They should face justice that this civil society hands out. But if they avoid any responsibility whatsoever for all their life, for all those offences, and avoid all of that, they will have their day in court. They will have their day in court. God will sit at the judgment bar and he won't miss anything. Justice will be carried out upon those who have been offenders and if you've been a victim and never seen it. God will carry out justice on them. We can rest assured in what God is and what he will do. On the other hand, though, we must ask ourselves this. Is there any Babylon in us? Are we just like the Babylonians in some way? Now, you may say here, hey, 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 I didn't actually go and do what they did. I never decapitated people's heads and just got away with it. I wasn't doing the sort of gross, barbaric things that these Babylonians were doing. Well, let's go back and remember what Babylon's root problem was. What was their root problem? Pride. Defying God. They were proud of heart and they gloried in themselves. And then what did that lead to? Well, I think one of the first things that it leads to in pride is it takes a hold of our tongue. And it does this. It's amazing how pride, when it's operating in our heart, how our language becomes a dead giveaway for what's happening in our heart. How quickly our talk with our tongue becomes arrogant or boastful with pride. Look at how the Pharaoh of Egypt spoke here. In uh, Jeremiah 46, 17, it says this, Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
noisy one who lets the hour go by. If you've got an NLT translation out there, it'll say this, loudmouth who missed his chance. Loudmouth who missed his chance. In other words, somebody who brags, somebody who boasts, and they're talking big. It's like pride is oozing out of their mouth with the language they choose. A loudmouth, just arrogantly boasting. How does that look with us, perhaps, sometimes? With our tongues, we can so easily, as pride takes hold of our heart, become harsh and critical, and we can do it very personally at times. We can cut people down with our tongues. Anyway, why couldn't you work out what I said? Even a two-year-old could work that out. How dumb are you? Have you ever heard that maybe said before sometimes? Or words to that effect? It just comes out sometimes. It just comes out very personally, very critically. This is what pride does. It takes a hold of our tongues. It makes us look big in our own mind and everybody else seems small. And we use our tongues to carry that out, to cut people down to size. The gospel redeems our tongue, not to cut people down to size, but to build them up, to be who they are and who they were meant to be in Christ. This pride, though, goes further when it's left unchecked and untamed. It may start with talking big and boastful words of arrogance, but then it soon, um, as it were, progresses to acts of jealousy. It goes to another level. And I believe this act of jealousy here shows itself in racism in some of its most ugliest forms. It's shocking when I, when I see it sometimes. I've seen these stickers on the back of some vehicles that say, Aussie pride, let's keep Australia, Australia. Now, if you follow the routes through on those sort of stickers and where it's coming from, it's actually all about reclaiming Australia from this foreign invasion of immigrants. Let's keep Australia, Australia. And what we get then as we look at that is an ugly form of racism. It's terrible. These people here are jealous that Asians and Indians are coming to Australia and supposedly taking all our jobs. They claim that the the people of the Middle East are ruining our culture with their way of life. And they build up a dislike to these people and they grow constantly jealous towards them. They're unhappy when these people succeed and they're unhappy when these people get ahead in life. And all they want to do is sort of stop this foreign invasion coming in. In fact, these people here might call themselves Aussie pride. All they would like to see is these people squashed and squeezed out of Australia so we can have Australia back for Australians. So-called Aussie pride. And what lies at the bottom of that really is pride. But it's not Aussie pride. It's sinful, God-defying pride. That's what it is. Their pride feeds their mind with, I'm better with them, uh, better than them, I deserve what they've got, I don't like them, and I want them out of my country. That's where that root comes from. It's ugly, ugly racism. Which is no different from Babylon. Babylon looked across at Judah and said, we are better than them. We want what they've got. Let's go and squeeze them and squash them and get rid of them. It's just the same as Babylon, except Babylon's doing it on a way bigger scale. The gospel tells me we are made in the image of God and we are to treat all people justly and and, uh, without any partiality at all in love, to love all people. 
So I guess you need to ask yourself this question today. What thoughts are in your mind as you scan across our streets and we see other nationalities here in Australia? I'll tell you what my thoughts are. My thoughts are this. I pray that God brings multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of Asians, Indians, Middle Eastern people, Africans and every other nationality I can think of into Exchange Church. I would love to see this church filled with a multicultural congregation of people. I would love to see people of all nations here gathering at exchange. I think that is an incredibly powerful witness of the gospel that all these nationalities can come together worshipping Jesus Christ in a uniform way despite the fact that we are from diverse cultures. I think the greatest shepherding community around about us looking in would see something in there to say, you've got this whole diversity of nations, Asians, Indians, Africans, Middle Eastern people and whoever, but you're all together in unity. What is this that welds you together that you get along so well? It's a glorious picture of the gospel that unites us together, not in sinful pride, but in God's love. And that's my prayer for exchange, that we would see that take place. Many nationalities coming in to, to, uh, to worship Christ. So as we consider these judgment oracles today, with the sovereign, sovereign justice of God, we must confess God isn't harsh in his judgment. He's not harsh. He's actually right. The judge of all the earth will do right. And we don't make any apologies for God in the Bible. It's right and it's good that God is just and a judge. Sometimes I think the reason we're uncomfortable with God's justice is because we don't quite see God's holiness correctly. If we get a correct vision of that, we see that God's justice is right. Having said that, though, often we can see ourselves, we are just like the people of Babylon in the way our hearts can gravitate towards pride and things like that. And if the truth's really known, we are no different to Babylonians. We actually deserve God's justice as well. Our hearts are like theirs. But if the story ended there, we'd be left with no hope. And that's not where God left Israel at that time. He said this in Jeremiah 46, 27 to Israel. He says, But fear not, O Jacob my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Beautiful words, aren't they? Fear not, Jacob, my servant. We don't have to fear God's justice today. We don't have to fear God's perfect court of justice, which doesn't miss a trick in this world. We don't have to fear because God somehow has missed it, because he doesn't miss it. You may ask, why don't we have to fear God's justice? What's happening in this verse here that would cause us to have comfort and not fear? Come with me to Isaiah 53 verse 6 and we'll see that. It says there, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the pride, the jealousy, the racism, 
the arrogance, the haughtiness, the jealousy, the bitterness, the Lord has laid on him all of those things. You see, we don't have to fear God's justice because Jesus Christ, God's own son, came and took that justice for us. He came to be the sacrificial lamb where all of that justice was poured out upon Jesus Christ. So we don't fear today because Jesus has taken that on our behalf. And because God is just, he will not ask for that sin to be paid for twice. When Jesus made the payment of that sin, it's accepted, it's done. We can trust that God will not ask for us justice from us as well because of that sin. It's been spent on Jesus Christ and today we cannot, uh, we can have total comfort in what Jesus has achieved for us and we don't have to fear. God is just, gloriously just and that is a great thing. It should bring us comfort. It also should uh, open up our eyes to worship this great and glorious God as well and live a life of justice to reflect his glory into this world. Let me pray. Father, we uh, come before you today and thank you as we have uh, finish off these last chapters in Jeremiah, these five judgment oracles. Lord, sometimes this can be really hard reading at times if we haven't been there before and haven't seen the way you deal. But Lord, I pray today you would uh, let your spirit open up our hearts to see that you are a glorious God who is just, who is sovereign, And who is the judge of all the earth? And God, that should put reverential fear in our hearts, not a caring fear in our hearts. A fear in the sense that we come before you as an all-filled God. But not a caring fear where we are fearful of that judgment, Lord, because today we can know that Jesus Christ has taken that judgment on our behalf. Lord, today perhaps there are people here who are connecting with the idea of being a victim of injustice. Maybe some of those who've been abused in the past, Lord, and they know that their offender or perpetrator has never, ever been brought to justice. God, I pray that you would uh, help their hearts to rest in that truth today, Lord. That you have seen all of those things that have taken place in their life. And you are the judge of all the earth, and you will do right. And justice will be brought down upon all offenders and perpetrators, Lord, who don't confess their sin and face uh, the consequence of their sin here on this earth. They will face you in eternity, Lord. Please comfort them today with that truth, I ask. And Lord, for us, all of us to some extent, with Babylon in our own hearts, allowing pride and arrogance and uh, racism, Lord, to just come out of us at times, I pray, God, give us a renewed heart that grows with humility, Lord, to look about these people around about us here in this land that we live, people of many, many different nations, God, with love, God, with community, with a willingness to embrace them, God, and to see them become followers of Jesus and to unite together as one body, celebrating Christ and seeing the gospel go forward in our hearts and lives. Help us, Lord, today as we think about these judgment oracles to see you as a great God, a big God, a mighty God, way more than we could ever imagine and believe, but a God who is willing to send his own Son into this world to take your justice directed towards our sin upon your Son and to do that, Lord, so that we can be 
brought back into right relationship with you. God, we thank you for that today and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come around the uh, communion table now. Neville's going to uh, lead us.